0: Welcome to Three Devs and a Maybe. Now, introducing your show hosts, Michael Budd, Fraser Hart, Lewis Keynes, and Ed Mann. Hello and welcome to another episode of Three Devs and a Maybe. My name's Ed Mann and today we're joined again by Matthias Gennar. How are you doing, Matthias? Hi, Ed. I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm very good, thank you. Long time no speak. I was actually looking back through the uh, through the lot for our podcast. It was like 2015. That's years ago. Is that really two years? I thought it was like last year. I know. If it, I know. Honestly, I felt the same way. I was thinking it must be last year, but it was actually it was the end of it was December of 2015. So I was like, wow, how time has flown. Exactly. We we were discussing HTTP two, and that's like totally passé now. It's it's the past <laughs> absolutely well and also i think it was the first time i was listening back to it. it's the first time you you tried out your yeti and now obviously you've, you've started a podcast yourself and everything so no it's been a it's been a very busy time
1: yeah, but the Yeti's been a bit rusty, by the way. But
0: <laughs> It's good to
1: good to clear the old lady off and uh, talk to it again.
0: <laughs> oh, no, brilliant. Well, we we'll definitely have to talk about all this. it be really interesting. But, uh, yeah, so, I mean, the fir- first thing I'd like to say, uh, you know, maybe for the audience, it'd be great to kind of, if they haven't listened to the previous show, is to kind of maybe a little general background about yourself. Okay. Um, well, my name is Matthias. I'm uh, a lot
1: of things at once. I'm both a developer. I'm a sysadmin um i do open source i'm a manager at nucleus we're a belgian hosting provider Um, i have side projects i blog i podcast i write newsletters Um, i also have a wife and two lovely kids and uh, somewhere in between i try to nap a few times and get some sleep Uh, but uh, that's luxury i can't afford right now so who needs sleep anyway
0: I was thinking, with all those hats, I doubt you get much sleep. Yeah, but that's what coffee is for, right? That's that's what <laughs> absolutely. That is why caffeine was invented. <laughs> exactly. Oh, brilliant! Yeah, but I just thought because, um, as you say, we were talking about HTTP two last time, and uh, kind of carrying on in that vein. One of the things I really wanted to talk to you about, due to like your blogging, and actually it sparks up from you did a talk about varnish actually on Laravel EU. Uh, conference last year so i really wanted to get you on to talk about varnish uh, and i was just say i really liked your laravel conference talk just wondering like, how, how did that go did you did you enjoy the experience i loved it um i think
1: it was the the, the biggest audience i ever had for a talk it, it was over 200 people um which which is odd because whenever i give a talk i'm always nervous as hell um i i, I stumble through my lines i i get sweaty all the time but then if you like see an audience of 200 people, it becomes so much and there are lights in your face and then all of a sudden it just looks like you're alone on a stage, which is really, really odd. So there's this, this fine line between if you're talking to a 50 people, you're probably stressing all the way through. But then once that audience grows, it becomes so unpersonal that you can just talk and talk and talk and it doesn't matter anymore. Just a really strange experience. Um, but I really liked giving the talk. Uh, Varnish as, as, as a tech Tool as, as, as well as technology is really interesting to talk about it's it's both complicated and challenging um, so it's a fun and thankful topic to be presenting about
0: I was going to say you did not sound nervous at all on the recording, and that's another thing. It was recorded as well, just for added extra pressure.
1: Oh, great! Now people can watch it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, it was perfect, man. Honestly, and it's very, as you say, it's very interesting. Then you say that obviously in in a smaller room, you know, you get to see people's faces. You may be a bit more personal with people, but as you say, you go to that scale, and it kind of it all just yeah desensitizes, and you just have no kind of you are on your own. Yeah, exactly.
1: Which is same like like this. We're talking one on one, but there. probably more than one people going to listen to this. Um, so, so this is more personal and it is giving me more well stress, I think, in a way. Um, whereas if you were an audience of 200 people, it would be so unpersonal. I could just walk off stage and nobody could see me again. And uh, Well, it, it's a really different experience, but I I loved giving the talk there. I'm uh, very grateful that they uh, they allowed me to
0: give a talk. So thank you, Laracon. I hope to be there uh, in a few years as well. And yeah, speaking about the, the topic then that you actually dis- discussed, uh, Varnish, what does Varnish solve then?
1: Well, I'll, um, I'll I'll start by giving a quick quick summary of Varnish, what it is and, and what it can do. It, it can do a lot of things. So um, to start, Varnish is software that you can install on your server. It, it acts a bit like a web server. It's a service that will run, um, and it acts as a reverse proxy. So if you were supposed to be running, um, say, your Apache as your web server, listening on port 80 and handling all of your HTTP traffic, Varnish would sit in between and it would start listening on port 80 and then proxy everything transparently without anyone noticing it actually um, to your Apache running on a different port. So Varnish sits in between all of the visitors to your website and the web server that is actually serving all of the traffic, the the PHP, the the request handling, etc. What it's trying to solve is, trying to make the web more efficient. So the, the their slogan of Varnish is that it's an HTTP accelerator, which is a really good word because it, it actually speeds up the web. Um, so the idea of Varnish is that it caches requests um, or in, in a way more of the responses of those requests. So whenever someone visits a website, if I, b- I browse a site and you visit it a few seconds later, chances are we'll be looking at the same exact website. There's no need to have... PHP running, doing all of its queries, then uh, getting some kind of uh, memcached or Redis caching going. In the end, we're going to be looking at the exact same HTML being outputted. And that is what Varnish is for. So it lets the web server do its thing, it generates HTML, and then it stores that in memory. So that if you go to the website, it's going to be heavy for you because all the database queries have to be run, all the, the object storage has to be hit. But if I go to again, then Varnish will have that same HTML page in memory, um, and it'll be served in milliseconds instead of maybe seconds to be generated. So the, the purpose of Varnish is really to speed things up, um, avoid repetitive and the same calculations being done on the back end.
0: Yeah, and it's it's all about like trying to give your main application server a break. Uh, anything that can be cached and you know dealt with and, and sent off because speed is as you say paramount. That you know we want to get it out to the to the, you know response out to them as, as soon as possible.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that's where Varnish actually shines. If you're looking at a a typical PHP application, if it's written well, um, you'll probably see response times between 100 and 300 milliseconds. If it's written badly, let's say you're you're looking at a default WordPress or a Drupal website, it it might take a few seconds to load. Um, When you put Varnish in between and when you configure it accurately, which is an asterisk on its own. Um, you're looking at response times between two and five milliseconds. So you're, you're shaving off hundreds of milliseconds per hit. Um, and when done correctly, you should see your CPU and memory just drop to near zero on the web server because it doesn't have that much to do
0: anymore. Yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And I mean, you know, for everything, for costs with, you know, infrastructure to the fact of, you know, faster speed, it's almost one of these like amazing magical things that can, you know, help you. Uh, Obviously, you know, it doesn't come without a cost, you know, you have to set it up, you have to configure it correctly. And you really have to kind of change your way of thinking in some regard. One thing I'd like to really uh, like to ask you actually is kind of how does Varnish go about doing this? Like what what headers and things does it kind of deal with? And and how does it go about the actual caching process deciding on what to cache and, and when to cache it and for how long?
1: That is both extremely complicated and extremely simple. Um, so I'll, I'll start with the simple explanation, which is how it should work in theory, but how it doesn't actually work in practice. Um, so the idea of Varnish is that it, it listens to requests coming in from your visitors for a website, um, and it looks at, at all of the HTTP headers that everyone is sending. Those headers will include if you are um, able to accept Compressed content or not? Um, if you're looking at an API, what kind of request you'd like? If it's JSON or XML, the th- those kind of headers are all metadata describing the request you want to do, and it'll pass that on to the backend. And the backend, your PHP, your Ruby, your Node application, um, will do its thing, generate a response, and give that back to Varnish with again a set of headers to describe what kind of response it's giving back. In those headers, there in theory um, should contain Things like cache headers that determine how and if a request or a response can be cached. So if all of this goes according to plan and according to all the RFCs being made, um, then Varnish is really simple because it only has to listen to whatever the client is requesting and whatever the server is responding. Um, But things get a bit tricky because it has to know that you and me visiting a different or the same website can be served the same response. So if you're looking at the Facebook and I'm looking at Facebook, chances are we're looking at a different kind of Facebook. Um, But our request may look very similar. We're just browsing facebook.com and we're expecting a response. However, you're logged in, I'm logged in. And the differentiator here between what you're seeing and what I'm seeing is going to be decided by geolocation on one hand, cookies being sent because you're logged in and I'm logged in on the other hand. Um, your browser may trigger different kind of responses from the backend than my browser. You might be blocking certain things. Um, so what, what looks like the same request on the surface is deep down a completely different re- uh, hit, and it's it's triggering completely different behavior on the backend. Um, so that's what I mean with varnish in theory versus varnish in practice. In theory, it just it just needs to listen to the HTTP headers that a client is sending and a server is responding with. But in practice, that doesn't cut it because every header, every request is unique in its own kind of way. Um, so that is where, where Varnish introduces its VCL, Varnish Configuration Language. Um, it's a C kind of language where you can manipulate every incoming and outgoing request in Varnish. So you can write if statements, you can drop hits, uh, you can rewrite URLs. You can pretty much tamper with the HTTP protocol the way you like. Um, and that is where the The power of varnish comes in and where the trap of varnish comes in because it's so easy to get lost in there and decide that the entire applications can be written in the vcl um, which is a fun practice Um, it's 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 fun mind games um, but in theory that doesn't really work so if you're looking at what varnish does for caching well it, it looks at the http headers that the backend sets so by Default, that should be things like a cache control header, where you can say that if a response is going to be a public or a private property, um, and additionally, for how many seconds it can be cached. So if you're looking at a site and it responds with a a 30-second cache control header, every visitor requesting the same kind of object will get the same hit in 30 seconds. And Varnish will keep that in mind as the TTL, the time to live. Um drop the object as soon as the the timer expires and then request a single object from the back end again so it's it's smart about it, but it in practice it doesn't really work the way it should in theory, so that 's where the complexity comes in.
0: I think, yeah, as you say, you're completely right with that. Where, you know, on the surface, my Facebook.com URI and your Facebook.com URI, you know, they're the same. Hey, we can cache the same things, but obviously, context and the fact of my session being different and really those responses are completely different. And, you know, there could be this scary game where, you know, if you do incorrectly do it, Varnish can cache other people's authenticated requests and deliver them to other people. And in fact, you know, other things such as, you know, they can cache invalid requests, such as 500 responses and give them to a lot of people when, you know, they weren't, you know, maybe not doing it like that. You know, it was just the fact that that first cash hit was a problem with that. Oh, oh sorry, that cash fetch was a problem. So I was, you know, one of the things then that you mentioned is the fact of like cookies uh and, you know, the fact of sessions and things. And, you know, those, I think, are the ones that those are the start to get into this whole game of, you know, how to cash things and, you know, the idea of, oh, you know, I need to strip cookies from things. You know, a lot of, a request that we typically think, you know, a browser request, you don't realize how much other stuff is actually going in that request, uh, you know, when it goes down the wire in, onto, onto the server. Uh, and one of them is the cookies that you actually have for that browser. You know, it could be Google Analytics cookies. It could just be session cookies. It could be your Laravel cookie, your session, you know, Symphony cookie, whatever. How does Varnish manage these cookies? Does does it, it Does it take that into consideration when it's doing its caching?
1: absolutely which is also uh, so varnish by default looks at three different things to determine um a cache hit or a cache miss so if you look at varnish varnish conceptually it's basically a big key value store where the the protocol to to talk to it is http so keys get stored and they get a value in 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 its value being just the html response of an http request um And the key is dynamically determined you can override it. You can tweak it the way you like by default, um, uh, the the, hash or a key in Varnish is going to be determined by the host header you're browsing with. So let's take facebook.com as an example, facebook.com would be the host that you're browsing to. It would look at the URL. So slash account slash me, for instance. Um, and then it would look at the cookies that are being set, um, by your browser. And those three parameters are basically what sets my and your HTTP request apart. So looking at those, that also means if you're logged in and I'm logged in, we each have a different session ID, hopefully, that also means that our caching is going to be wildly different. Every time I refresh, I will see my version. If you refresh, you'll see yours, but that doesn't really add much to the efficiency of Varnish because if that's the case, Why even bother putting in a reverse proxy in the first place? doesn't really help much. Um, So Varnish mostly helps in those unauthenticated scenarios. Looking at a news website where 95% of all its visitors are just people looking at the news, but they're not logged in. Each of those is going to get the same kind of response because nine nine times out of ten, they won't have cookies or have a limited set of cookies, um, which means that the hash in Varnish or the key in its key value storage is going to be the same for all of those people. Um, But where it gets tricky and where I learned a lot about the HTTP protocol is in the way that cookies get handled and set within the browser. Um, So it's very interesting just to go to, let's let's say, google.com, right click the page, inspect and go to the network tab, hit refresh a couple of times and see what cookies you're getting and what cookies you're sending on each request. Um, It's actually quite a lot because... It's not just the cookies that your website is setting, like the session ID in a Laravel application. Um, every time that you add a third-party tracker, um, let's say you add discuss for Commons, you add some Google Analytics to track your visitors, each of those adds JavaScript to your site and can set cookies on your own domain. So each of those cookies, even though you didn't actually request them because they're not part of your app, um, the third-party JavaScript can send can set it on your domain. And from now on, every visitor refreshing your page is going to send all of those cookies to your site as well. But that um, complicates the the whole notion of caching because suddenly you have a third party that you don't really control from beginning to end adding cookies to your site. Those cookies are interfering with the hash or the key in its key value store. Um, And suddenly you're, you're, you're invalidating cache with every refresh. Um, so that's where, where the complexity of Varnish mostly comes in. You have to understand the HTTP protocol, what goes on when cookies get set, that they are actually being sent on every request, including images or CSS or JavaScript. And once you get the hang of that, you can start tweaking it. You can start dropping cookies that are irrelevant for the cache. Google Analytics being a good one, usually it doesn't matter that much on the back backend um, what your ID of Google Analytics is. And then you can look at whitelisting or blacklisting cookies, um, depending on, on whichever use case you have to handle those cookies. But that's where it comes comes in handy to understand the HTTP protocol and to, to know what happens when you send a request and how do cookies even get set in the first place. Things like that. The inspect tab becomes your close friend whenever you're uh, interacting with Varnish.
0: Absolutely, completely concur there. And, and I think, you know, it, it is very eye-opening, you know, to see, like you say, how these cookies are built up and how, it, you know, order isn't determinate. You, you, you know, you can't rely on the fact of, an, you know, maybe I do one request and I do another request. They've got the same cookies in, but they're in a different order. And all these kind of things where, you know, you want to get to the same hash and you want to make sure that you lose anything that really doesn't matter, like, say, like the Google Analytics cookies. Um, one thing I would like to ask is, what's your preference towards, like, whitelisting and blacklisting cookies? Because um, there's a lot of like kind of pros and cons to both, but where do you kind of uh, side with that? I think if you're just getting
1: started with Varnish, blacklisting cookies is going to be the easiest because there are a lot of examples on the internet on how to remove cookies by, by copy pasting the same old regular expression over and over again. Um, but it's very readable, you can really understand what happens, and if a cookie matches that expression, it gets removed. It's visual. It's copy pasteable, which well, it has its own value, of course, but it doesn't scale obviously, because if you're adding third party JavaScript to your site and let's say it's discus for comments, if they decide that they want to add additional cookies and you don't know about those, they'll get added to your site. They won't be removed because you're blacklisting cookies. And this might not be a, a pattern that you foresaw. And suddenly your, your cash strategy breaks entirely because well, just your your hash is different again for every request so blacklisting is is very easy to get started with but in the end it doesn't really scale it gives you a bit of an uncertainty that you don't know how your site or your application is going to act tomorrow or next week because you don't know what's going to happen um whitelisting on the other hand is safer um it's it's In the end, it'll end up being a very close tie between the Varnish configuration and your application, because every time you want to add new cookies to your site, you're going to have to whitelist them in Varnish by means of adding them to, again, some sort of regular expression block that you copy paste. Um, And everything that doesn't match is going to automatically get dropped, which is safe. Every time that you add a new cookie, um, you have to explicitly enable it in your VCL, Um, Every time that a random site adds a cookie, it won't hurt you because you're whitelisting it and everything that doesn't match gets removed automatically. But it's, it, it gives you a really close tie-in between the VCL, the Varnish config, and your application. Whereas if you're looking at um, some kind of CDN that happens to be built on Varnish, you might not have that flexibility because it has to cater to a, a lot of type of requests and you can't really determine the, the hash and cookie strategy for that. So there are, as you mentioned, pros and cons to each approach. For getting started with Varnish and just playing with it and seeing how it it reacts and responds, I think blacklisting is the the easiest way to get started with. Whitelisting is technically possible with a couple of hacks, uh, but there are extensions to Varnish called VMods or Varnish Mods. Um, Those are basically binary extensions that you can load, consider them like in Apache, you had mod PHP or mod deflate, so actual modules being loaded. Um, they give you some more control about um, how v- the type of functions that you get within the VCL. Um, one of them is a cookie vmod that allows you to explicitly manage and more easily white and blacklist um, cookies in Varnish. Because if, if you're looking at the inspector and you see the kind of headers that are being sent, a cookie header sent from a client to a server is basically one really big line. Um, with. It's not pretty. And if you try to parse it, it is so error prone. Um, it are actual key equals value pairs. And then there's a, there's a colon. And But then if your value actually also contains a colon, things get really interesting. Um, so it, it gets tricky to parse it with just regular expressions, which is where VMods, the, the varnish mods, actually come in and help you with usable functions to to filter those kinds of uh, those kinds of cookies
0: you've touched upon there like the vcl configurations um you know that's been used in varnish and how powerful it is and using the regular expressions and stuff i definitely won't ask you know kind of to explain it in depth because you do a really good job in your um, presentation to kind of explain and and show the power of kind of i think you went from like a one request down to show like kind of all the different hooks and stuff you could do or or many of them and and showing kind of you know what a request could look like and how you could really mess it up and switch it around and change it within varnish and you know then to, to to give it to the the actual back end but it'll be really interesting to kind of know the general overview of the common hooks and stuff that you'll genuinely deal with in the life cycle of a request
1: yeah sure uh, in, in varnish i think if you're getting started with it there are three areas that are very important i think in, in, in overall there are around 20 different types of hooks that you can hook into to manipulate where a request is being set or removed or where cookies are being handled um, but if you're just getting started with it and you want like 80% of the functionality of Varnish, um, three areas stand out. One is, is the receive hook, which is if you're looking at Varnish as a black box, it's where every request comes in. So every HTTP call that I make to a website would go into Varnish. And that is the first area where you can write code because in the end, VCL is just C-like code. If, if you're used to writing PHP, it'll look really familiar. Um, so it's it's code where you can manipulate what comes in you can um, remove url uh, patterns you can set add edit http headers Um, you can really toy with the request that comes in you can make it look like you're browsing to facebook.com and modify the request so that it's actually twitter.com that's where, where the receive hook comes in after the receive hook is where varnish can do a look up in its cache to see if it already has a a value for the page you're requesting, which is where the hashing comes in because the hashing algorithm, that key value idea of where you can decide what the key is going to be for your hit or your request, um, you can modify that. You can add headers, you can remove headers. If you don't like cookies being part of the hash, you can just decide to drop that entirely and just look at the host header and the URL. Um, If you're looking at a static website, for instance, that might be a very valid strategy. Um, but that's the hash. So that is where you determine the key of your request being looked up. And on the other hand, of course, you have whatever it is that your backend is going to send back to your client. So the PHP application has done its thing. Um, it has generated an HTML response with occurring HTTP headers and that is being set back to varnish and that you can also manipulate the, the most common ID here is that you could override, um, a time to live for a particular request. For instance, if your backend did not set any cache control headers, you could say that, okay, Varnish, you have not received uh, a cache control, but trust me, I know what I'm doing. Accept uh, ex- that this re- URL is going to be cached for 10 minutes. Um, and it allows you to, even though the application might not support it, override the headers that an application is sending back, um, which is the, the the big power of Varnish, I think. It allows you to play man in the middle in, in the most... Um, real sense of the word you're actually you're holding an, an http request and a response in your hand and you can juggle with it the way you like and you can modify it and you can make an http 200 call look like a 404 for your end user um, you can play with it but it's it, yeah with great power comes great responsibility um, i've shot myself in the foot more than once and it's really easy to do
0: I think, yeah, that's exactly it. And I think, you know, the power does come at, you know, a price. And, and I was wondering, like, how do you go about then testing these VCL configurations? Because as they're, they're so powerful, you really want to make sure that they work before you put them in production. What, what do you, how do you go about doing that?
1: Well, this is the embarrassing part. Um, it's really hard to test a VCL. So what I usually do is, well, at, at work, we are, are heavy users of Vagrant and Puppet. Um, so we can test a lot of our configurations in a safe virtual box environment. But it's not the same. It it doesn't give you the same feeling of getting the same amount of hits per second because it's vagrant. It's a virtual machine. You're not going to get production traffic there. Um, And testing it usually involves running it with curl and then setting or removing headers command line, um, which is fine for basic testing. But if you're trying to test entire scenarios of logging in, uploading an image, cropping an image and logging back out, you're not going to do that with curl. Um, so a strategy that I like, but is also very dangerous, um, is writing if statements in my VCL that match particular headers that I set. For instance, if I add to my browser, um, a custom header saying, hi, I'm Matthias. And you can just write an if statement that if that header matches, hi, I'm Matthias, uh, trigger different kind of VCL logic. So I can fake my own kind of requests, making my request unique and tr- triggering different kind of logic in Varnish. Another strategy would be just looking at the IP address that comes in. Um, if it's your IP address, and you trigger a different routine versus the rest of the traffic. Um, but it's um, a bit of a cowboy style way of of, of working. I think um, I've yet to find a really good strategy. Um, if you have the luxury of having some kind of staging and production environment. You can play all you, all you like on a staging environment without hurting anyone. Most of us don't actually have that. So we're, we're stuck with if statements uh, to, to separate m- my own hits versus those of legitimate clients.
0: Yeah, I think we've found that having that staging environment is the only way at this time of really testing it. The trouble is, because of how powerful it is, and you do have a response and a request in your hand, you essentially can just take down the whole site within one one line, if that, you know, and you don't know uh, until you put it into production, you see the result, because there is no test kind of infrastructure around it. That's You know, there, there, there seems to be like around Puppet and things like that. But this seems to be kind of one of those missed opportunities exactly and i think
1: having a test versus production environment we have one client right now whose production environment is on an infrastructure level a hundred percent alike from their acceptance lab for for the testing environment but in a production environment they do things like google analytics tracking which they don't do in a testing environment um, but in varnish that makes a huge difference because those adding random cookies might completely destroy a caching strategy that that was validated and was confirmed to be working in a testing environment um, so there's always going to be the the unknown about a production environment where you don't know what kind of hits you're going to be coming in. You've got you've got uh, Google bots, you've got Bing bots crawling the website, um, doing all sorts of crazy things that you don't have on a testing environment. So I, it's it's really hard to test this accurately without resorting in the end to if statements uh, matching particular headers to to get different routines going.
0: It's this kind of idea that you know the your vcl logic then really comes very tied into what your application logic is because of this you know this dealing with different cookies and and how the structure of things and you can do rewriting of urls in varnish and and all these great things and great powerful tools but you know it goes in the aid of like well how are you going to test this how are you going to release this and be confident that it's working um you know one of the things i'd love to talk to you about is is kind of the balance between you know how do you how do you kind of balance the, you know, the routing, the caching logic uh, within Varnish and then like the backend web server and then also the application logic because not only do you have, you know, the, the level now of, you know, your Varnish that then goes to maybe Apache or Nginx that then could do some rewriting itself and then also back, you know, to the actual PHP application logic or any, you know, ambiguous application that you're actually going to. Where, where, how do you balance this and partition it? Are you, are you quite dumb in your caching logic in Varnish or do, do you aid, like to say, no, I'm going to use a lot of Varnish magic?
1: I think this ties into the, the whole practice versus theory of Varnish. Um, in theory, Varnish works out of the box without any different changes because it can just listen to HTTP headers being set by the application. But that's theory. And that's also the way that I prefer it. In in the end, a dumb Varnish, a Varnish that does not have a lot of logic where requests and responses get manipulated, is the best kind of Varnish because you don't have to maintain it. You don't have to look at it um, all... Strategies revolving around caching can be maintained and developed and tested from within the application. Say you have a Laravel application, you determine what headers are being set for your cache control. So in, in order to determine if a request uh, or a response can be cached and if so, for how long, it is very powerful to have that control as a developer in the application itself, where it's easy to manipulate um, and, and determine what your response should be. Versus if you do it in a VCL, um, it, it's not always that easy to control and manage. In the end, you have to log into a server, edit a config file. Let's say that you do it by hand. So you you log in as root, you vim it, um, you test some changes, you reload varnish, and you hope that it works. It's a really different, it's a difficult scheme to get going without downtime. Um, so my the, the best case scenario is a dumb varnish that has absolutely no logic where all logic is being handled inside of the application. But that's the best case scenario. And and in the end, that's not how it works. Um, I I maintain a a lot of boilerplates, varnish configurations. Think of it as as HTML5 boilerplate, but then for varnish. um, And it contains a lot of normalization that you also see in HTML um, that just gets reused again and again. So every time that you have to strip Google analytics cookies. It gets boring really fast. So there's a one template that you can just use as a baseline, which sorts the URL parameters. It drops cookies that are irrelevant. Uh, it normalizes different kind of HTTP headers so that you get a sort of a sane baseline to get going, um, which is a shame because that also means that there is logic within the VCL that will or might interfere with the way your application works. But I think that's just going to be the way it is. In best case scenario, it's as little as possible, but I don't think you can get around with getting
0: some kind of application logic within a VCL. And I think, you know, let's say using something like your configuration templates, uh, which I really do like a lot, it's in a maintained resource, at least, you know, it's not a copy and paste from a website where you just forget about it. And it's a buggy one that isn't, you know, this has been tried, true and tested by you and by many other people. Uh, So at least then there's a community around it, similar to like how well that HTML5 boilerplate did where there's a community around it. Exactly. Uh, Full disclosure, the, the HTML5 boilerplate is slightly more
1: popular than my varnish configurations. Um, But it's really helpful that the community, and even though Varnish is a a really small community, but dedicated folks, um, they spot bugs before I spot them or they run into them, unfortunately, and fix them so I don't have to run into them. Lots of things around. If if, um, tomorrow Chrome Canary does a funky new release and it starts setting new headers that I did never foresee, um, someone else can go ahead and fix it and normalize everything in the config. A good example is Um, I think it's already a few years ago that there was a a proxy vulnerability being disclosed where you could set additional headers in your browser or in your application um, that could trick a web server to send requests to a rogue proxy. It was really easy to manipulate by just setting additional headers in every request. This was patched within, I think, a couple of days by just adding a single line of varnish configuration because it sits in the middle of every request. It just drops all of those http headers that it sees coming in but that's good because i never had to think about it and someone else did all the work for me um same applies to if google analytics tomorrow starts adding new random cookies someone else can go ahead and pull request that um and your baseline can be sane again
0: now that's brilliant absolutely and i like you say because it, it's this reverse proxy in the middle anything like any kind of vulnerability that is you know on your web server, the nginx the caddy the well, I suppose you would use "caddy" in front of it, maybe, but you know, like you know, those kind of things and the patches you could, you know, you are safe from. I suppose then, what's really the thing is the the fir- the front line is now varnish, and I'm just wondering, kind of like, how what what tools are there then to monitor your varnish instance? Um, there are a few, and they're all as
1: geeky as you might think. Um, there, there's a couple of command line tools. Well, basically, everything that you practically do in varnish is going to be a command line. There are web interfaces that can give you assistance or help you. But at the end of the day, you're going to be logging into a server um, with SSH and running command line tools to debug whatever it is that is going on. Um, There are a couple of interesting tools um, that Varnish offers out of the box. Um, One is interesting, but at the end of the day, utterly pointless. It's it's called Varnish Hist. It gives you a a histogram of all of the requests coming in and out of Varnish. Um, Basically, the you have to to, to know is that that Varnish doesn't log anything on disk because Varnish was meant to be fast and provide performance and scalability. Disk access is inherently the slowest part of any server. Um, So every request coming in or every request being sent out is all in memory. Nothing gets persisted on disk. So all of the the debugging and logging tools that Varnish offers, they hook into a shared memory buffer, which is a, a in in memory of your server where Varnish sort of dumps all of those logs um, and it can read those so Varnish Hist is the histogram which gives you um, a really cool looking looks like the New York uh, skyline just mountains and and, uh, skyscrapers that um, they represent the hits and responses that your website is doing Um, it will show you lines or hashtags um for hits or misses and it can give you a in, a in a bird's eye view an idea of how your varnish is doing if you're seeing a lot of pipe signs so the the, the vertical lines chances are your web server or your varnish is doing okay because those are all cache hits and the more hits you have the, the happier you should be um but at the end of the day that doesn't give you much to debug on it's 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 a good idea for the first 10 seconds to see are you caching anything or not um But then the next question is, what are you caching and what aren't you caching? And that's where Varnish is. um, Basically, you drop that and you go on to the next tool, um, which is going to be Varnish log. And that is a raw log of everything coming in and out of a server. So every HTTP header being sent and every HTTP header being sent back to the client is going to be shown on your screen. Um, So on average, I think if let's <laughs> let's go back to Facebook. Uh, if you go to Facebook, um, it'll probably load something like 50 different images or CSS or JavaScript. Each of those is going to have 10 headers. Um, just opening Varnish log on a terminal is going to scroll really, really fast and not be re- uh, very, very legible um, or legible. Uh, so you're going to be looking at at filters to to manipulate only your hits, for instance, or only the backend fetches, those misses. Um, It's powerful, but it's really confusing output. Um, You you, you need at least that basic HTTP understanding to know what you're looking at because those are the raw headers. You're seeing exactly every HTTP header being sent and every HTTP header being sent back to the client. Um, But I think Varnish Log is the most powerful tool to be debugging with, Um, albeit the most complicated because it, it drops you right in the middle of the protocol.
0: No, absolutely. And actually, you mentioned on your blog um, something called Varnish Agent, uh, which seems to be like a a GUI web application front end for Varnish to kind of unlock some of its features. I'm just wondering, like, have you used that in production at all or was that mainly just to kind of, you know, like this looked quite interesting? Uh, Mostly the latter. I I saw it get mentioned by
1: the Varnish project and thought, hey, this looks interesting. Let's give it a go. Um, And it's really easy to install. Takes less than five minutes, I think. Um, And what it gives you is a, a basic admin interface for your varnish so it gives you a web interface that you can log into um, which has a couple of forms you can fill in to uh, to invalidate caches so to to remove content from your cache you have an inline edit for your vcl although it's pretty sane it tries to load it and if the 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 generation of the vcl fails it, it won't go any further so You can shoot yourself in the foot by just um, removing all your caching altogether, but I don't think you can actually crash Varnish. So in that sense, it's semi-okay. It's a good, I think it's a good playground to get started with Varnish, um, but at the end of the day, you're going to be looking at integrating Varnish into your application somehow. You're not going to look log into the, the Varnish agent every time you want to flush a cache, for instance. Um, you're going to look at some kind of integration from within the app. So you quickly look past the agent, I think. I, I haven't found a good use case for me to keep it going.
0: Oh, that's that's interesting. That's good to know. And and actually, you mentioned there uh, caching and actually removing caches items because obviously, you know, it, this ever building up of a cache. We've got finite memory, uh, and it's what to actually keep. Um, how does Varnish go about doing that? There are basically two ways to get
1: um, to get cache invalidation going. So there, there's the, the always running joke that cache invalidation is one of the hardest things. I, I think that that once you start to work with Varnish, that quickly becomes apparent that, that this actually the case. <laughs> Um So, there are two ways to actually do it. One is called by setting uh, sending an an explicit purge request to varnish, which is an http call but instead of doing a get or a post or a put method, you can use the purge method and then add additional logic within varnish that receives a purge method and then goes ahead and purges content that matches that URL which is a very um good or an easy way to get started with purging your particular URLs or whatever. Um, But it's also very very limited. It's limited in the sense that um, it's really hard to say which kind of variations of a particular page you want to purge. So I may want to purge the slash EN slash account page, but there may be uh, different variations of that page because it's being handled by cookies to determine how many permutations there are of that page. But you can't really... Um, purge all of those variations of a page easily easily via the purge method. Um, the, the, good I, the good thing about this though is sending a purge to Varnish will immediately remove the object from the cache and free the memory. This may sound logic, but there's a different uh, method for handling cache invalidation, which is called banning. And banning is a more passive way of, um, of, of removing objects from your cache. So the idea of a ban is that you um you have more flexibility of setting a, a ban in varnish so in a ban you can say that everything that matches a particular regular expression so you can match host headers or urls um should be banned from the cache but that means that every hit that comes into varnish so every new hit coming into varnish is going to be evaluated against this ban list and if it matches if it gets a hit that should actually match your ban It'll drop that from the cache and then request a new one. But it's a passive way in the sense that it's only going to be evaluated for every incoming hit to your Varnish instance. Whereas a purge, you send that actively to Varnish and actively will be purged from cache and freed memory instantly. Whereas a ban, you're going to want a hit on a particular page before a ban is actually in effect and before a page or an object within the cache is going to be removed from memory, which is, I, I hope I'm explaining it accurately for, for, uh, for listeners to understand what it does. I think it took me a while to understand how banning works. It's, it's, it's a really different concept of handling cache and invalidating content Um, But it's really powerful in the sense that you can use regular expressions. So you can say that everything that matches a .css file, but only on these five particular domains and only if a user has this cookie, uh, then you can drop the cache and all the others can still use the existing cache. So it's really powerful, um, but with it comes a certain amount of complexity um, that, (laughs) that you have to get used to.
0: Well, no, as you say, I mean, as you say, the power of it being able to do that and you don't have any upfront costs like a purge, you know, a purge will get rid of it at that time and then it will have to refetch it then. But a ban is more a case of, yeah, well, I know now I don't want these to, you know, I want to refetch these when I get them. Obviously, it will keep the other things in memory. And I think that's where, you know, people instantly assume, oh, a cash removal is really always going to be a removal and I'm going to see the memory be freed immediately. But that's when ban maybe can get confusing because it's not actually removing it yet yet because it's, it's very passive like you said it's it's not doing it until it actually has to which you know on, on sites that are very busy and have very complex rules that that's a great thing um one thing actually i was going to ask you about is something and it's it's called the ban lurker um and it's something i've only just really learned about and i would I'd love you know kind of get maybe get your explanation on what actually is the ban lurker i love your explanation of just banning by the way it's it's better than mine i'll stick to it oh um, no no yours was great man
1: The the ban Lurker solves um, a logical chicken or egg problem that occurs here because uh, bans are being set and they are marking particular objects in the cache for deletion as soon as someone tries to request it. But that obviously comes at a problem when you have pages that are never going to be requested again because those are only evaluated for every hit that the varnish is going to receive. Um, It's the same thing with... Um, If if you're going to be looking at your Google Analytics to find the pages that get um, zero traffic, you're not going to find those in Google Analytics because you need at least a single hit before Google Analytics tracks it. Um, Same happens here. You need at least a single hit in Varnish to drop a particular page via the ban. And the ban lurker um, is a concept where where Varnish routinely goes over all the objects in its cache. Um, to trigger if ban logic. So even if a page is in cache and it's not likely to be hit again in the next five years, um, the ban lurker is going to fake such a hit so that it triggers the ban logic um, and eventually the, the data does get purged from varnish. So ban lurker is, um, yeah, it, it, it sounds really bad. <laughs> it sounds a bit naughty. Um, but the idea is that it is going to loop over all of your objects in the cache and decide or detect if a ban should be should be uh, done on that particular object or not.
0: You know, another thing, actually, thinking about caching in general, you mentioned, you know, caching is one of the hardest problems. And and one of the things with caching that people do come up with a lot is the the concept like the cache stampede problem. You know, when I'm asking for it and another person's asking for it at the same time and we get a request and and all these kind of things. I'm just wondering, how does Varnish actually handle those? It handles those out of the box, which is really nicely for a
1: caching product. Um, It's something that... um, When I first started implementing Varnish, I I never thought about this problem because I never saw it in practice. So the idea is that um, if 10 people would hit the same website at the same time, Varnish is going to receive all of those 10 within, let's say, three or four seconds. Um, The first hit that it gets, it will evaluate that for its cache to see if it can give you a cache hit or not. And it probably isn't going to give you a cache hit, so it has to fetch those from the backend. And every next hit that comes in requesting for the same page, Varnish is going to notice that it already sent a request to the backend requesting that particular page, which is nice because it can just block all of those other incoming requests instead of sending 10 requests to the backend. Um, And as soon as that one hit from the backend comes in, it doesn't just send that to the one person requesting it. It send that, sends that back to the 10 people that are waiting in line for that object. That obviously um, rises or falls with your hashing algorithm. If your hash is different for every request, you are going to be sending 10 different hits to the backend because that's what Varnish was instructed to do. Um, but if it's the same object, if it's the same request coming in and there is already a pending request being set on to the backend, it won't send five or six different requests. It will just wait for the first one to to be done, which is good in a cache stampede problem because it won't give you the thundering hurt. It won't overrun your backend. Which is what you're trying to protect yourself against with Varnish. <laughs> exactly, which would be a bit uh, foolish to, to send them all to the backend. There is, of course, a logical consequence here that if that request, for whatever reason, is slow because maybe it's talking to an external API or maybe the query being run on your database just happens to be a bit slower, you're going to be queuing a lot of users that might actually have been served faster if you had just sent multiple hits to the backend. Those might have been faster than waiting for the one slow hit. Um, So there is that trade-off between solving a cache stampede versus accepting the consequences that go with it. Being if that is a slow request, you might end up, hanging a couple of longer uh hanging those users a bit longer um so that is a trade off that you uh th- that you that you just have to take
0: yeah no that's a really really good point there um and, and another thing actually so you know we we have discussed quite a bit about you know the concept of like we brought facebook up but you know facebook with authentication and and obviously i'm logged in you're logged in we're seeing different things and what do we cache there you know is is there any point in me caching say all my content like would there be a point in me caching maybe my news feed that's going to change every you know every time i refresh it um there's this concept of called esis and it'd be really interesting to get your your thoughts on on, on what esi is and also kind of how you can put them into practice i'd love to um esis esi stands for an
1: edge site include which if you've ever worked with php is very comparable to just the include statements in php Or if you go back further in HTML, you had the server side include option, where one piece of HTML could include different kinds of HTML. So basically, the PHP include, but then raw in HTML being handled server side. Um, So ESI is is that concept, but handled within Varnish, which is a bit odd, because imagine that if you're going to facebook.com, you might not get a cache hit, so your, your, your Varnish is going to send that to the backend, um, to your PHP site. Your PHP site is going to send an HTML response, but instead of giving you, like you mentioned, an entire HTML response with a newsfeed and your high ads on the top left and your five friends on the top right, um, it's going to give you some kind of placeholder, different kind of HTML tags in the body of your response, um, which are essentially just empty tags. They just refer to different kinds of URLs Um, that varnish receives varnish looks inside of the body of that html it detects those esi requests essentially um, and it'll fire off on its own an esi request for each of those sub resources that you specified in the html body so if you say had um, five sub resources being set for your newsfeed and your private messages and your um, personal greeting Varnish is going to send those five at the same time to the backend. And as soon as it receives those five responses, it'll assemble the HTML that it tried to assemble in memory and give you, the visitor, a page as if it is just a single HTML response. If you look at it, the way Facebook handles those things today, a lot of it is AJAX driven. Um, ESI is essentially AJAX a bit on steroids. It is doing the AJAX stuff, but in memory of Varnish. Um, and offering a single HTML response to the end user.
0: And I think this, again, is the, the beauty of how simple Varnish can be to how complex varnish can be because when you start bringing things in like ESIs, you really are kind of playing around with how the application is structured and you know like thinking really first class about how caching should be, what can be cached on a page and how can I kind of you know break up a page into certain parts that can actually be cached and for how long and and this yeah all these things kind of have to be taken into consideration. Another thing actually we really could talk about is kind of what to cache. You know if, if things are very dynamic, there seems to be no point in caching them. And actually one thing. You you did mention in the blog post was thinking twice about caching just static files i'm just wondering kind of yeah what what is your stance on what to cache and you know how obviously how business specific is it if you're looking at varnish you probably have a problem
1: you want to solve and you look at varnish as a potential solution so if if your backend is running at 100 percent cpu usage you're going to get a lot more benefit from caching your actual html and php hits versus caching all of your CSS or your JavaScript because those are static files and yes, they they cause a bit of load on your backend, whether it's network traffic or or logging for all of the hits, it's going to be negligible compared to say your two or three second PHP page load um, consuming all of the the CPU and memory of your MySQL server. Um, So so I think you have to look at Varnish and look at it as a tool to solve a problem. The way I looked at it at, at the beginning was I was trying to aim for the biggest possible cache hit ratio i was aiming for the 99 cache hits and that that made me happy and the easiest way to get that is just to make sure that every static piece of content on your site every image css or javascript gets cached because on a typical page you have like 10 or 20 of those and even if the actual page doesn't get cached because the config is wrong um, you're going to get really big cache hit rates because of all, all of the static content is going to get cached But that doesn't solve your problem nine times out of ten because your backend is still dying for every PHP request that it receives. So I'm a big fan of actually caching static content after you've done all the rest. Um, It's really easy to cache static files and it might give you a performance boost. But if it doesn't help you with speeding up the actual slow pages, it might have just been worthless. So you look at whatever it is that is hurting your servers. uh, Make sure that gets cached, and if then you have memory to spare in Varnish. Throw in all the CSS or JavaScript and it will help with speeding up the delivery to your clients, but that's not going to make or break your site probably.
0: No, absolutely. Completely concur there. And I think, you know, as you say, like the memory you've got is finite. And what is the problem you're trying to deal with is is the application logic request. You know, it's things like static files, they can go off to a CDN and they can be dealt with somewhere else. But the real logic and the reason why you're using something like Varnish is because you've got a problem with, you know, processing computation that you need to somehow address. Exactly. And if you have spare resources, throw everything in the cache, of course. Why not use it?
1: Chances are you don't have spare resources, but uh, which is why you should... Look at static content as a last resort. Even though I I love the graphs where you see those 95% hit rates the end it doesn't help you if your application is still dying on every hit.
0: Yeah, exactly. You can't really go to someone and say, "No, no, it's fine because I've got the 99% at cache hit ratio." Exactly, no, but it's still slow. Like, no, it's 99%. Like it's just the wrong, you know, it's the wrong percentage that I want. You really just want to deal with that 1% there. Exactly. It could actually actually save you. With varnish actually. Varnish is a great tool and you know, you you put it you say, you know, you put it in front of, you know, your typical your nginx or your or your apache. One thing it doesn't deal with though is SSL and that can be a bit of a hindrance you know we're now things obviously moving over to ssl all the t- everywhere and specifically you know when we were talking about http uh to last episode ssl is everywhere and should be everywhere how does varnish get around that then because it is only just a http protocol and it doesn't deal with anything to do with ssl well exactly that is a bit of a hindrance i think um although varnish 5 implemented
1: a the very basics of http2 and, and if you remember http2 required https but it still doesn't offer the 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 ssl or the tls part of http2 um, so it's essentially still an http only proxy um, every time we deploy it it's going to have an nginx sitting in front of it doing everything that is ssl or tls related Um, might be even caddy doing the proxying it might be an apache doing the proxying Um, something else is going to sit in front of your varnish that handles whatever encryption mechanism or algorithm you want which also adds an, an immediate cost to your infrastructure there's it's obvious that if you're going to run varnish you might have an apache so you run varnish in front of your apache but then you want https so you're going to run something else in front of varnish to handle https it quickly adds up to a technical stack um, to admire, but also to maintain. And that is a cost, that, again, that you have, it's a trade off you have to keep in mind. Um, but Varnish in itself doesn't handle HTTPS. It's always going to be something else sitting in front of it. Now, they, they have, um, or the Varnish project, the, the the folks behind Varnish, have their own TLS proxy. It's called Hitch. Um, I don't actually have any first hand experience with it because I, I Enjoy and really like Nginx as a reverse proxy, but if it is as efficient and smart as Varnish is, I think it's a good choice. Um, Just it's not something that I have a lot of experience with.
0: Yeah, it's it's very interesting why you know they haven't decided to do that. I mean, obviously it must be a simpler goal uh, to just handle HTTP flat out plain, but you know to not add that in kind of does you know add add. It's not only saying oh we need to add Varnish in front of our stack. We now need to add Varnish and another level just to get rid of the tls it's it's an it's an interesting one
1: well it's good news for managed hosting providers like us where we can manage the infrastructure but i agree it's it's yeah it, it in a way it follows the unix philosophy of making a single tool that does a single thing really good they have varnish which handles http really well they have hitch which probably handles https really well but there's not a single tool that handles both really well um so that, there's an area to be filled obviously
0: and actually, that, that leads on to the next question, which is: Are there any alternatives to Varnish? Because something like looking into Nginx, and Nginx does you know provide maybe quite a lot more. You know, it it does the stripping of TLS, uh, you know, SSL, and it also can do some rudimentary caching stuff. I'm just wondering, kind of any experiences using Nginx in that form, or any other products. If you're looking
1: at open source solutions, there's nothing that comes close to Varnish, I think. Um, yes, Nginx has a caching solution. But it doesn't give you the same flexibility that you have in varnish. It, it doesn't allow you to mess inside of each request and response the way varnish does. But if you're already running nginx and you want a, a perhaps a more basic, and I don't mean that in an, in a, in a bad way, but just a more simpler caching uh, strategy, I think letting nginx handle your your cache. Is probably a good first choice. It's going to make your infrastructure a lot less complicated than adding yet another proxy in front of it. For the same reason that Apache can also start caching your files. So th- there are a lot of alternatives, but if you want to raw power, nothing comes close to Varnish. You have um, commercial solutions. You have your, your uh, F5 big IP caching solutions, but I think those start at like 50 grand or more. You need a big wallet to get started with the commercial solutions.
0: It soon mounts up for sure. And and to say thank you so much, Matthias, for coming on the show. I only got two other questions just before we leave. Uh, the first one I have to ask is kind of like, you know, you you, you did release, you, you you actually started a podcast um, after our last podcast, actually, Siscast, And I, I've been, I really enjoyed it. Like every episode I downloaded immediately and, and enjoyed them. I'm just wondering kind of like, what was your experience with creating a podcast and, and do you have any show topics lined up?
1: <laughs> i wish i had i have a lot of ideas but i i noticed making a podcast is incredibly hard <laughs> and requires a lot of planning and dedication so hat off to you and the rest of your crew um, you've been doing this for way too long and you keep on doing it I, I like writing blog posts it's something that you can do for like 10 minutes and then drop and then pick it up in an hour later and then perhaps drop it a few days and then pick it up again that is not an option in podcasting. <laughs> you dedicate an hour or more and you just go all in. And if a baby starts crying halfway, you might just have to do the entire recording again. Um, so it's really intensive. And I, I underestimated that. I thought it would be easy to just start a podcast. Yay, everybody happy. But it's not. It's it's a scheduling mess, which again, sorry for, for this one, <laughs> rescheduling all the way. But it's it's intensive. There are time zones. You have to schedule things. You have to get some kind of room where you're not disturbed every 5 minutes um it's I've, I've put the podcast on hold for a bit um thanks for enjoying the previous episode I, I hope to pick it up again um but so far it's been a bit too intensive to combine with the, the 15 other side
0: projects i oh, was so like you the- you've got fair whack on already i think adding a podcast in it i mean this is the only thing i do as a side thing so yeah and i even i i mean i've tried to leave podcasting but it is very addictive uh you know and you get to talk to great people like you so it's you know a very valuable resource it is very addictive isn't it it, it gives you
1: it's it's amazing how many people say yes to come onto a podcast i had guests which which run really big open source companies that i thought were totally unapproachable until you mentioned the podcast and
0: then they're like oh that sounds interesting i'll talk to you." <laughs> It, it opens doors definitely, absolutely, and actually talking about one of the other projects, side projects you have going on, and it, it's it's called DNS Spy, and I'm, I'm really interested in this product. Like, so what what actually does this solve? It, it solves a particular problem that I had. So, um, a bit of background
1: i I work at Nucleus, we're a managed hosting provider, so we manage infrastructure where other people will put their websites on. Um, And part of that is building new infrastructures where clients can deploy an existing website um, or migrate to us. That always involved a bit of timing because you have to schedule migrations. You have to time it with developers. Um, But I quickly learned that that doesn't really work that way. And then developers or managers or whoever basically decide on a whim um, to move their DNS to points to us. And suddenly we're receiving loads of traffic that we never saw coming. Um, So I built... I think it's already five or six years ago, a small bash script that just notified me whenever a DNS or a domain that I was interested in um, changed the DNS. That could be because I wanted to monitor my competitors to see what they were doing um, or whenever a client of ours would go live. And that actually was still running a, up until a few months ago. So it, it added actual value for me to know when DNS has changed or when outages occurred. Um, and I decided to build a commercial application around it called DNS Spy, which... Only deals with DNS. Um, But I think if you're a developer and you have a website ready to go and you've sent a DNS change request to your client and it has to talk to its provider and it takes a while and you're hitting refresh and the site doesn't come live, all because you're just waiting for a DNS change, I think that is where DNS spy could come in and just send you a notification that, hey, the DNS actually changed without dealing with all the resolver caching, etc., just looking at the source name servers. If they changed, you get notified, and that's the way it works. Um, but I found it to be really useful for both myself and the clients that I've been having. So it's, uh, it's been interesting as well to, to play with Varnish, um, uh, Laravel, I mean, uh, and Laravel Spark, um, the business side of it. It's, it's been good or fun to be diving back into the PHP and development world. It's been a while, so uh, that was a fun intro back
0: yeah because i was going to ask actually like kind of what is the stack that you're using i know you're using laravel there and laravel spark but like how, is it still just a bash script that's going around or or have you kind of expanded on that it become a really really fancy bash script uh, <laughs>
1: so in the end all the processing everything that's going on is raw php because that is my go-to language and it's, it's what i know best um but it spawns out shell scripts wherever needed to to get raw performance um in the end, it's not really complicated. It's, it's a lot of PHP, it's a lot of bash and shell scripting. Um, and I've been toying in my head to do some rewriting in Go because the concurrency model of Go seems absolutely brilliant for this. But then I always come back to it, that takes time. And for me right now, it's easier to add server resources and a lot cheaper to add server resources than it is to be rewriting a, a core function of my application. So it, there's there's always that trade-off. But most of it is just plain old php laravel laravel spark i think it's been the best investment i've made in the last year um, it actually allowed me to get this going in the first place ad- adding payments user account management um, billing invoicing none of those things i actually want to build um, mm. but spark out of the box just out of the box i think i a hundred bucks for a single site license um, one time and you get all of that for free which it would have cost me months to build um it's really head off to Taylor for spark it's it's an amazing product
0: no absolutely and, and matthias thank you again so much for coming on the show i really do appreciate it it's been really really fun and interesting just talking about all this stuff with you it's been my absolute pleasure uh, thanks for having me <laughs> no absolutely i, I say we we'll definitely have to do this again sooner than two years for sure we'll, we'll schedule it if i ever come to england i'll just come by <laughs> <laughs> absolutely that'll be perfect <laughs> we'll have no network problems there exactly. at all <laughs> alright then audience well it's been another great episode and we'll speak to you again next week goodbye you've been listening to 3 devs and a maybe you can contact us at contact at 3 devs and a maybe dot com, or follow us on twitter at the number 3 devs and a maybe